Now, it's moments like this that I'm reminded of an old idiom because we had a gift for dads. Someone in this body uh, blessed us with some CDs that are really instrumental and were very helpful with them in being a father. But the old idiom is the early bird gets the worm because first service cleaned them out. So you guys slept in a little bit for Father's Day, maybe had a little leisurely morning, but no CDs for you. (laughs) However, I will say this. I want to challenge you. If you're interested in that, CDs can be listened to multiple times. And so shoot us an email if you want access to one of those. Find someone in the first service uh, that was here that grabbed them and just say, hey, let me borrow that after you're done. So perfect. Thank you, dads. Seriously. Thank you. All right. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, if you've been with us, we've been traveling through this chapter. We're going to be doing it all summer, what's called the Hall of Faith. And today we get to verse 7. We're going to do something that's very uncrossroads like We have one verse today. That's it. But don't worry, you're still going to get your leg work out when we stand for the reading of God's Word because we're going to add some supplemental chunks in Genesis. Thank you. You're on it. Go ahead and stand right on up. I'm not going to leave you hanging out there. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith Noah, when warned about the things not yet seen, in holy fear he built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Now quick, turn back to Genesis chapter 6, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Those people with iPhones are loving it. It's a little easier, I think. Genesis 6, starting in verse 9, I'm going to start reading. You can catch up. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. He walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people of the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people. For this earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make for yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you're to build it. The ark will be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Noah interrupted and said, what's a cubit? (laughs) Only kidding. Make a roof for it. Leave below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark. Make a lower, middle, and upper deck. I'm going to bring floodwaters to the earth to destroy all life under heaven. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You're to bring the ark and and two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it among the food that you have for them. Noah did everything just as the Lord commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. You can grab a seat. I don't know if you've been here for the last month, but I hope that you're starting to see why we chose Hebrews 11. 
We've had a chance to trace all of the major storylines of the Bible in Genesis up until this. And each one of those things is going to be incredibly important this week and every week after it indefinitely. So if you missed any of the last three weeks, you guys might as well just get up and leave now. Only kidding. Only kidding. Some of the bored high schoolers sure perked up for a second there. Half day at church. All right. Like I said, I'm, I'm kidding though. Sorry, high schoolers. I don't mean to call you out. It's probably the parents more so. Uh, If you missed the last few weeks, though, you're in luck because we're going to do a high-speed recap here. Maybe not high-speed, come to think of it. We're going to do a medium-speed recap, all right? If you lined all the recaps up in the world, this one would be smack dab in the middle, medium-speed. And the reason is we got to go a little slower. And it might take some time. You guys might be very familiar with everything we cover in this recap, but there's a reason we're going to do it. It might be new to you. I don't know. Everything that we talk about in the beginning here is going to come back up as we look at Noah. So bear with me a little bit here. This might be familiar. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and His Spirit hovered over the waters. He created an expanse to separate the waters of the sky from the waters of the earth, and He called it land. And then He created plants and animals, marine life, and ultimately the pinnacle of creation. I know it's Father's Day, but sorry, men, it's not you, woman. And the world was sinless, and it was perfect. It was Eden. And then the man and the woman, though, they couldn't keep it perfect, and they rebelled against God, against their Creator. They said, it's not enough to be made in the image of God. We want to be God And they wanted to be just like Him, and the world was forever altered. All hope seemed to be lost. Man and woman look at each other. They start at the head, and they start to go down lower, and they realize, whoa, you're naked. And so they sew some clothes together. And God looks at them, and He kind of just shakes His head, and He says, that little fig leaf ensemble is not going to do. This is the first outfit in human history. And so God makes some new clothes for them, some new stylish clothes. At least that's how it reads Genesis 3.21 in the Brandon Standard Version. If you're not reading that one, it's probably in your best interest. So God removes His freshly clad man and woman, takes them from the garden, but not before He gives them a promise. And this promise is so important. He says that there's going to come a time when the seed of woman is going to crush out evil, going to crush the head of the serpent, going to undo the curse. And that promise should raise a praise God inside each one of us. Because apart from that promise and its fulfillment, we'd all be doomed. Then the last two weeks, Rod did a masterful job just talking about the slow progression and decline of the human race. As soon as they leave the garden, chaos starts erupting. Adam and Eve have a child, Cain. And I have no doubt that they were thinking, this is the one, this is the seed of woman, this is the one who's going to blot out the curse, and instead he blots out his brother and he kills Abel. And we see, just like with Adam and Eve, that sin always has consequences. Cain is sent packing from his home, but he's given this mark of protection. There's grace even in it. Then we get to 425, Adam and Eve make love again, and lo and behold, Seth is born. God giving us the full play-by-play. No doubt where babies come from in Genesis. But this is really important because from this point on, we see two lines in Genesis. We see Cain's line and we see Seth's line. 
And Rod did a great job of just illustrating Enoch and Seth's line, who was the seventh from Adam, and he walked with God. And then we have the seventh from Adam in Cain's line, Lamech, and he kills a young man, and he brags about it in song. And then we come to our section. And that recap was really important because now we're seeing that that progression towards sin and wickedness is fully birthed. It just continues going. It's no longer individuals, but now the entire world is wicked. Look at Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, that earth that He created, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth, and His heart was deeply troubled. And as we read in our passage, the final outcome of that sin and disobedience is God's judgment and death. I want to step back for a second and give you just a little free tidbit here. There will always be consequences for sin. Always. There will always be consequences for sin. Even the members of the hall of faith that we're reading dealt with the consequences of sin. Moses doesn't get to go to the promised land. David loses a child because of his son, her sin. In fact, all of Israel gets punished on a later account because of his sin. We didn't read it, but Noah ends up getting drunk after the flood and as a result ends up cursing his own family. There's always consequences for sin. And so if you're here today and you're just thinking, my sin isn't a big deal. It's not really that big a deal what I'm doing. Thinking nothing's going to come of it. You're not really impacting others. You're not impacting yourself. I can assure you, sin always, always, always finds us out. That was free. It's a little early in the sermon to be preaching like that. But I just get so fed up with the lies that we tell ourselves that our sin doesn't really matter. We try to minimize it and manage sin. And I get so fed up because we believe that lie. Because I believe that lie at times. So with that little rant aside, let me jump back into our passage. Why Noah's Ark? Why is this story in your Bible? A great question we always have to ask. What's it trying to tell us? Let me start with a little confession for you. Even as a pastor, this story is just hard for me. It's a difficult one. It's an interesting story, for sure. It's such an odd story to be put on nursery walls everywhere. The whole earth is judged. The whole earth is flooded. Everyone dies. And as Christians, we look at each other and we say, you know who'd like this story? (laughs) Babies. Babies would love this story. As pastors, I get question, as a pastor, I get questions about Noah's Ark all the time, and they sound a lot like this. How do all those animals fit in that boat? What did they eat when they were on the boat? Wait, what did they eat when they got off the boat? Because how depressing would it be if that ark came to a rest, and all of a sudden everybody's getting out, and that lion gets out and kind of stretches and everything else, thinks, I'm pretty hungry, and eats one of the zebras. <laughs> Instant extinction. Other people ask questions like this. Why did God let mosquitoes on the ark? Why did Noah let the mosquitoes on? Like, yeah, you keep coming. All right. This, this is all right. Questions to wrestle the, this week. Let me tell you guys, though, there's great answers to these questions. There really are. 
There's great answers. You can look on the internet. You'll find some people that attempt to answer them, give you some speculation on how the ark could have been fully laid out and all that. But I think that we miss the much, much more important why question that's underneath as Christians. Why are there miracles in the Bible? Why is this specific miracle in the Bible? Or if you want to ask the how question, ask this. How does the story of Noah fit into the larger story of the Bible? How does it fit with the stories that come before and after it? I think because we're so focused on our 21st century logical questions, we miss a key fact about miracles in the Bible. So if you're taking notes, write this down for me. Miracles are meant to communicate. Miracles are always meant to communicate with us. So am I saying that we need to shut our brains off? Absolutely not. Listen to the first message in this series, Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand, we've thought through, we've contemplated, we've reasoned out. But what I'm saying is that we miss the fact that when God steps down, And he starts to intervene in human history and starts to make changes and do miraculous things. He's trying to tell us something. The plagues of Egypt, they weren't just magic tricks. They were theology, teaching Israel who God was, what his plan was, how they fit into it. Jesus' miracles, we just finished up Luke, but I hope that you guys have come to understand that his miracles had a point and a purpose. They showed us glimpses of something bigger. Dick Lucas calls them windows by which we see, we peer into the very kingdom of God. They show us the character of our king and his kingdom. That Bible in your hands, I want you to know something. It is the most beautifully woven, detailed, interconnected story that's ever been written. That's why God doesn't just send a plague on the earth. Wouldn't that be a lot easier for Noah I mean, no ark, no 150 years of building that thing. Instead, a plague comes, it wipes off all of mankind, it leaves the animals, it leaves the earth, it leaves the plant life. I mean, can you imagine the endless mud after the flood? I mean, I, I had a couple inches of snow on my yard, and this summer when it melted off, I had something called snow mold. I didn't even know that was a thing. Why do we live in Michigan? It would have been a lot easier just to send a plague, but God doesn't do it because he has a purpose here. God is trying to communicate with us. Miracles always are meant to show us something. So why did God create a giant, inconvenient, messy flood? He's recreating another biblical story. What story is he recreating? Here's a hint. He's recreating another story. Wink, wink. What is it? Someone yell it out for me. Creation. Thank you. There's so many parallels between the flood and the creation account. Someone give me some some parallels. What can you think of between Adam and Eve and creation and the flood? Water. Perfect. Water covering the whole earth. What else do we have? Animals. Perfect. I love it. Even mankind being put in charge of the animals, right? Let me give you guys a few more. We have the deep, the tehom. 
We have the earth covered by water like we talked about. We have God's Spirit, His Ruah, hovering over the waters, His wind. We have the waters receding, dry land appearing. We have the classification of the animals like we just talked about. We have God blessing them, God saying the same phrase, be fruitful and multiply. We have human beings being described as being made in God's image. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Both stories, I've got several of these things. Both stories conclude with the the punishment for sin and the death of an animal. Both have three sons. One gets blessed and one gets cursed. Noah becomes a man. In Hebrew, the word is Adam. A man of the ground. He's a gardener. What was Adam's profession? He's a gardener. Even their very lives testify to this. Okay, Adam, he's a gardener. He grows works the ground, grows some things. He eats of the wrong fruit. He realizes that he's naked, and then he gets cursed. And then we have Noah come along, and the same four things. He works the ground. He drinks too much of the wrong fruit. He gets naked, and then immediately we have another curse. God isn't creating a flood and an ark because it'll look good on nursery walls. He's communicating something deeper with us. He wants us to see that he's decreating and then recreating. He created, and it was good. But things became corrupted. It was perfect, but it went south. Even the best things become corrupted. I've told you guys before about my love of bacon. And this week, I took it to a whole new level. I was on the Bacon Wiki online. Yes, that's a real website. And on that website, I quote, it says this, Bacon was first invented by God. And it was not only good, but it was perfect. I get the feeling this was not written by a rabbi. (laughs) Yet you take a good and perfect strip of bacon, crispy, never floppy, kind that you hold up and it just would kind of slowly bend, but only so far, never further. And you take that perfect strip of bacon and you leave it outside for a couple of days. And what happens? It's inedible. It's disgusting. It's gross. It's become corrupted. And here, God created the world. Probably the first time an analogy has been made between Eden and bacon. But you get this crispy, perfect Eden, right? And yet human nature and time have utterly corrupted it. And the only thing left to do is to start over. Now, admittedly, that's not my best analogy that I've ever given, but I'm so thankful that you guys shared your story today. I said this in the first service. That is the perfect story and illustration of decreation and recreation. Taking your marriage and being honest enough to say when the chips are down, we need to actually totally redo this thing. And when Susan left, not even knowing if she was coming back, and then to rebuild and to recreate, but centered on 40 days of God, what do you want this marriage to look like? What do you have for it? It's a beautiful, beautiful example for every one of us to see. Every one of us to apply to our lives, whether married or not. God here has watched his creation decline. From Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel, till by the time of Noah, the entire world is wicked. And then he decreates it. He gives a fresh start. He undoes all that's been done. And like any builder knows, you don't build on a rotten foundation. You tear it out and you start fresh. And let me tell you, this passage should be a wake-up call for us. That reality should be alarming. It's very unpopular today 
to talk about God's judgment, to talk about His wrath. But God is far too holy to tolerate our sin forever. Our sin will ultimately lead to judgment 100% of the time, individually and collectively. We like to imagine that this isn't the case. Like I mentioned earlier, we like to think that sin doesn't have its consequences. But this world was corrupt. Look at how it's described. Genesis 6-5 again. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and how every inclination of the thoughts of the human hearts was only evil all the time. And he regrets that he even made them. Now when I read this verse, it scares me. It scares me because I wonder, is Noah's world so different from our world today? I know my own heart. I know my own mind. And apart from the moments where the Spirit of God is renewing and refreshing and changing me, I know that my inclinations are selfish and they're wicked. And I read passages of Scripture like this and I think, Brandon, think America, judgment's coming. It's the forgotten part of the gospel. We all love the cross, we all love the resurrection. We love adoption as sons and daughters. But how often do we actually think about the fact that Jesus is coming back to judge the world? Turn with me to Luke 17. Luke 17, verse 26. It's one of the takeaways from Noah that Jesus himself wants us to see. Luke 17, 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up until the day that Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and rebuilding. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like that. This is going to future now on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on a housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain and one will be taken and the other will be left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, the vultures will gather. Seems like a great passage for the mirror this week, huh? Yet to see a Luke 17 tattoo on anybody, at least from these verses. We don't want to think about this. I'm serious. We don't want to think about it. But if we did, it would revolutionize how we lived. We're not in that different a place from Noah. Or really not. God's coming back, and He's coming back with a sword of judgment in His hands. What do we do with that? What do we do with passages like Luke 17? This is what makes our passage today so relevant. It answers the questions, and it shows us someone who responded well to the same situation of a world that was under impending judgment. Hebrews 11, by faith, Noah when warned about things not yet seen. 
By faith, Noah, when warned about the very type of things that we just read about in Luke 17, in holy fear, he built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness that is keeping with faith. Please don't hear me. I'm not saying that we all need to build an ark. All right, we don't need the crossroads cruiser around here. But this passage tells us several things that we can learn from Noah. Noah believed God. And like Abraham, Hebrews tells us, it was credited to him as righteousness. He became an heir of righteousness. Noah believed God. He had faith. He trusted God at his word, and he changed his life, and he acted. If you read the biographies, the great Christians who came before us, even people in recent times, what you'll find is that they all understood this. Elizabeth Elliot passed away this week. A huge loss to the Christian community. Huge loss. But she got this. She knew that vengeance wasn't hers to dish out. And that the people who killed her husband would be under greater judgment than they could withstand. And so what did she do? She went to the very natives that murdered her husband and she warned them about the ultimate judge. And she did it to spare them from their wrath, from his wrath. And I'm guessing that a lot of you guys are actually tuning me out, not just because you're bored, but because this idea of wrath and judgment is so unpalatable today. We want to say, isn't the God of the Bible just love? That's all that he is. I want to give you guys three responses to that. Three responses. One relational, one psychological, and one theological. One relational, one psychological, one theological. One, relationally, love that doesn't get upset about rebellion and rejection, it's not real love. Love that doesn't get upset about rebellion and rejection is not real love. Let me give you an example. In my marriage to my wife, if I stop caring about her faithfulness, if I stop caring about if she rejects me, what happens? The marriage dies. We know this instinctively. True love, real love, is always concerned about the faithfulness of the other. If God didn't care about our sin, he wouldn't really love us. Two, psychologically. Study after study has shown us that there's something inside of each of us that when we know about the coming judgment, or even on a smaller scale, our impending death, our mortality... It changes us for the positive. Psychologists like Irving Yalom, philosophers like Martin Heidegger, they all say the same thing. They argue that when a person has a greater awareness of their own mortality, they lead better, happier, more fulfilled, more purposeful lives. What they're saying is that far from this being a depressing thought, it should actually be a motivating reality for us. Three, theologically. For God to be a God of grace, he must also be a God of judgment. For God to be a God of grace, he must also be a God of judgment. By definition, grace means not giving us what we deserve, judgment, but giving us instead unmerited favor. But beyond even mere definition, if you want to take the judgment of God out, you're going to have to erase massive parts of your Bible. God judges the Egyptians and thousands of them even drowned in the sea. God judges the Israelites and he leads them into exile and captivity and slavery. 
God has Jonah go to Nineveh and tell him he's going to judge the whole city and everyone's going to perish if they don't repent. But let me tell you something. God also always gives a warning. Always. People don't always listen to it, but he always warns. He sent Moses and the plagues to Egypt. He sent Jeremiah and the prophets to Israel before exile. He sent Jonah to Nineveh and they listened and they repented and they changed. And today, he's given us Luke 17 and a whole bunch of other passages that warn us that he's coming back and he's coming back with a sword in the hand. Noah believed God. He believed his warning and he acted. In holy fear, Noah built God's promise led to obedience in his life. 150 years of day after day, swinging that hammer, building that boat, each time being reminded, boom, flood's coming. Boom, there's a flood coming. Got to get ready. Boom. Better tell my friends. Boom. I wonder if Noah prayed for those who were perishing. I wonder if he prayed for them to repent and come to their senses. Prayed that he'd have to build a bigger boat with tons more room because all the people would want to join him. I wonder if he prayed for him. I assume he had to. But then again, how often do we pray for the lost? If Noah prayed for him, though, he didn't stop there. 2 Peter 2.5 tells us that Noah also preached. It calls him a preacher of righteousness. Hebrews says that by Noah's faith and actions, he condemned the world. It's amazing to think that Noah's a preacher considering all that he says in Genesis. In fact, who can tell me what Noah says? He doesn't say anything. He's silent. Up to and during the flood, Noah doesn't have a single line. He's an actor without a script. But I'm sure that he talked in real life. I'm sure he preached Peter tells us that he did. He says that he was a, a preacher of righteousness, but more than that, I think Noah preached by living it too. 1 Peter 2 tells us this, we're to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse us of wrongdoings, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. Noah lived his life in a manner that testified to God's existence. The world was evil, full of all kinds of wickedness, what parties did Noah refuse to go to? What opportunities were presented to him that he turned down because he wanted to follow God? All the while, Noah just kept his eyes fixated and focused on God. Building that boat, being a preacher of righteousness. I have no idea that he was like Jonah, just telling everyone, repent! A flood is coming! Repent! Are we that voice in our generation. Judgment's coming. I want to transition just a little bit here because as much as the story of Noah is about God's judgment on the earth, it's not the biggest thing here. The biggest theme here is God remembered Noah. His grace. Look at how the story of Noah ends. Turn to Genesis 8.13 with me. Tell me, what is the word when you read that that stands out to you? Genesis 8.13. Someone shout it out for me. It's probably repeated a few times. First. Thank you. First. 
God wants us to note that this is a new creation. Something new is happening here. It's a new era for humanity. And God inaugurates this new time with a covenant. In Hebrew, the word is berit. Notice I did not say berit-o, all right? One is the Hebrew word for covenant. The other is the American word for delicious Mexican food. Or is it Spanish? Is burrito Spanish? Is it a Spanish word? I wasn't sure. Thank you. Thank you for correcting me on that. My Spanish is a little rusty. Um, I think it's for good reason, though, that this is the first usage of it. In fact, it's the first time of over 290 times. I'll stick to Hebrew. I know that a little bit better. 290 times that the word burrito is used in the Old Testament. I know. People count this stuff. And God uses Berit here seven times to signify something to us. In that little section that you're reading, he says the word covenant seven times to let us know this is a perfect, all-encompassing covenant. Yet, if this is an all-encompassing covenant, how do we read things like 821 that says the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth? That the human heart didn't change after the flood. The human heart was still wicked and evil we know it because this, can, this particular covenant doesn't place any condition on us. There's no if you're obedient or if you're sinless. This is an unconditional covenant between God and mankind. It's even in the sign that God provides. He gives the rainbow. And that rainbow, I didn't realize till this week what all it fully means, but that symbol, the bow, God calls it in there. To the ancient world, that would have been the weapon of war. That's what it symbolized to them. And God says this, I've set my bow in the clouds, Genesis 9, 13, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. In other words, God's saying, I'll put my bow in the clouds and not in my hand. It'd be like someone putting their gun on the ground and backing away from it in today's world. I love this. What a perfect sign of an unconditional covenant. The fact that it's reiterated twice only just shows it more. God says things like this. When I see the bow that I put in the clouds, I will remember. It's a sign not just for us, but also for him of the peace. Of course, as Christians, as beautiful as the rainbow is, we have an even better symbol now. We have the eternal symbol of the cross and the empty tomb. You see, Noah makes sure that the human race will be saved and continued, but he does nothing to change the human heart. In fact, the flood afterwards, people are still as evil as ever. Noah immediately gets drunk. He becomes the world's first stripper. And then he curses his son and his grandson. The next chapter, we have the Tower of Babel. The world is still broken, but if humans haven't changed and their hearts are as evil as ever, how can God promise, never again will I flood the earth? because God is a God of justice, no doubt, but he's also a God of pure grace. And God has a different way of dealing with sin and wickedness. Instead of destroying all of sinful humanity, he's going to destroy his perfect son. That's really the reason why Noah's Ark should be painted on nurseries all over the place. Because the story not only points backward to Eden, but it also points forward to the greater Noah. Noah is foreshadowing someone who's going to come who is the perfect representation, does what he could not do. Noah is a righteous man, a blameless man in his generation. One who was, when the world was all corrupted by sin, one man stood out. 
But Noah wasn't perfect. He's described that way to point us to the one who is. Noah is a person who obeyed God without question, a person through whom God made a new start for the world. One man saving the entire world. Does that sound familiar? Even Noah's very name parallels Christ. It means rest. Noah's dad named him the bringer of rest. But Noah couldn't bring rest. The ark hardly stops when we see chaos already seeping back in. We need the greater Noah. The one that Luke says is Jesus, son of Noah, the seed of woman prophesied about in the garden, the one who's going to come and crush Satan's head, remove the curse entirely, free us from sin, the one who doesn't survive God's coming judgment on a wooden boat but the one who instead lets himself get swallowed up in that judgment on a wooden cross. He lets himself be crushed so that we can be delivered. When we fix our eyes, not on Noah, but on the one that Noah foreshadowed, it changes how we look at everything, how we look at the coming judgment. We now know with confidence that we'll be spared. We know with confidence that because of his sacrifice, we're going to be okay. And we become like Noah, eager to become preachers of righteousness, to take this good news that there's an ark, there's salvation, freedom from the coming judgment to the world. So Crossroads, let me ask you this. Have you put your faith in that Jesus? The one who was swallowed up so that you ultimately might be spared. If not, I'd love to talk to you. There's no bigger decision than putting your faith, your very life, into that boat with Him. If you today have already made that and you look up at the clouds and you see God's bow because you know that all of His justice was taken out on Christ on your behalf, let me ask you, what if Luke 17 is true? What if He's really coming back and He's going to judge the world? What if we're living in the days of Noah and he's not going to tolerate our disobedience forever? Before Jesus recreates the earth, he's going to do a lot of decreation. And if that's true, shouldn't that change how we interact with our friends and family? Shouldn't that change how we interact with the city and how we live our lives? Shouldn't we, like Noah, be preachers of righteousness? Is there anyone in your life today who needs to know this message They need to be warned like Noah warned the people, like Jonah warned the people, like God warned the people. Repent. Judgment's coming. But they also need to know about the ark, that he gives grace and he provides a way, and that through the cross we'll all be spared of that wrath if we put our faith in him, the greater Noah. Let's pray. God, I'm just thankful that you did provide a way, that you do provide a way. God, that that although we're all under judgment, you've paid our debt. God, help us to fix our eyes on the real message of Noah, that you're a God who is coming back, but that you're also a God who saves and who spares and who recreates. Help us to live lives that testify to that, and help us to be like Noah, preachers of that righteousness to a corrupt generation. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen.